0: Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. On this podcast, we're going to talk about some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place and provide inspiration for others. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires everyone. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you You meet here, we all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. Welcome back to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galaudner, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Joshua Mesrich, Associate Professor of Surgery in the Division of Transplantation at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Mesrich has an undergraduate degree with a major in Russian Languages and Literature from Princeton University, and he graduated from Cornell University Medical College. He works in Wisconsin, but he's also a writer. He's written many articles for The Atlantic, and his first book, When Death Becomes Life, Notes from a Transplant Surgeon, was released on January 15, 2019 by HarperCollins. Welcome to the Make Meaning podcast, Josh.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here.
0: It's so wonderful to have you. Um, I read about you, I read about your book and I said, I, I want to speak to this person. This sounds just mm-hmm. like you have such an interesting journey. Um, and so I'm excited to talk not only about your book but about the work that you do as a surgeon as well. Um, I wonder if you can take me through, I know you have quite an interest in writing and storytelling and I wonder how you chose this medical path while continuing uh, your interest in writing.
1: Yeah, I mean, i uh it's interesting. I've always uh, thought I had a book in me or hopefully more than a book. Um, uh-huh. I grew up in a family where we did so much reading. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents would make us read two books a week and we would, uh, they would read them as well. And we would discuss them at the dinner table. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, I mean, it could have, I guess it could have backfired, but <laughs> <ended> up, <laughs> we all love reading. And actually my brother, Ben, I have two brothers, but my Brother Ben is a writer, and his, I think, 21st book is coming out oh, wow. uh, in a couple of weeks.
2: That's pretty yeah, amazing. So
1: it's really amazing, and I've watched his career and met so many of his friends um, and continued my love of reading. Uh-huh. Um, I, You know, for years now, when I... Um, well, let me back up. So I actually majored in Russian language and literature in college. Right, and right. I never thought I would... Probably have a career in Russian language or literature, but (laughs) I just loved learning about that culture. Uh Um, I was fascinated by medicine because, uh, well, my my dad went back to medical school when I was younger, and I kind of watched that journey. And of course, I always loved Mash and wanted to be Hawkeye. Love it! I think that's part of it.
2: Yeah, but I've always
1: wanted to write, and so for years now, when I meet patients that are compelling or have an interesting story, I will t- say to them, you know, I, I really am um, uh, kind of moved by your story. Would you mind if I shared it someday in some fashion?
2: Uh-huh.
1: And, um, you know, I, um, I I never quite knew when I was going to use them, but then I started writing a little bit for The Atlantic um, and was able to tell some of those stories. Yeah.
0: Um, it's interesting yeah. because I think... Um, you know individuals who are in medicine could take several different approaches. there could be the human side you know I want to interact with humans and and increase their quality of life, um, save lives that kind of thing. It could be the science angle as well you know like I'm so interested mm-hmm. in how the anatomy works and the biology and how do I um, how do I connect things and and reroute things if I need to um, And so there's so many different ways. And I I think some doctors very much are are disconnected from the human side of medicine, whereas others are all about the patient and all about the human experience, which is so different from patient to patient, I imagine. Right.
1: No, it's so true. I mean, I've always, I like both sides of it, honestly. And Uh um, I've always thought uh, the patients teach us so much about. Uh, life and it's honestly a privilege to hear their stories and to watch how they deal with illness and disappointment Um, you know sometimes you see them at their best and their worst um, but I I think um, it's a very special relationship and um, I've always kind of really valued that Um, and uh, I guess I think I get more from the patients than they get from me (laughs) in a lot of ways
0: and of course they probably say the same thing in reverse you yeah, know.
1: maybe so. <laughs> you know, I will say like, it's, it's, it's such, it, especially during training, you're so kind of busy and there's so many tasks to get done that it is actually easy to lose sight of the patient side of it.
2: Sure.
1: Uh, and, um, you know, being able to step back and really connect with the patients is actually what makes the job, uh, uh fun and enjoying and enriching.
2: Yeah. And I
1: think when you lose that, that's when you can, you can start to feel negative about the career and, get burnout and these kinds
0: of things. Well but I think I think it's you know, it's interesting. I work in marketing and public relations and communications mm-hmm. and I'm hearing similar things that I know. You know, if I'm working on a task at hand, it doesn't feel very human. It's very get the work done, mm-hmm. check things off the to do list. On the other side, when I'm immersed with a client and I remember why they're so driven to do what they do and that story is what I'm charged with telling um, it becomes a very human connection, a, a very uh, relationship-based transaction. And so I imagine you probably feel the same.
1: Yeah, I definitely do. And I have to tell you, you know, r- writing the book um, has actually actually reconnected me with a lot of things because um, not only was I able to talk to all of these patients during the book, but it just kind of reminded me of all the, all the great things, great reasons that I went into this career and all the, sure. you know, what it's all about. So, um, I think you know if you have to do the other work, but being able to connect like that is is what makes it great. And yeah, um, so you know, that's, what's special about my career? Let's yeah. talk
0: about the book a little bit. So, um, mm-hmm. did you know what you were setting out to write, or did you mm-hmm. discover it as you interviewed patients?
1: You know. I, a little bit of both. I am. Um, I actually uh, a very important moment was when I read the book Emperor of All Maladies in mm-hmm. two thousand eleven, uh-huh. which was uh, you know Mukherjee's yeah sort of history of parts of cancer, but he used his patients to tell the story. Sure. And I really loved how he did that. And I wanted to do something similar, but I I didn't want to do it exactly the same. I did want to include some of my own coming of age as a surgeon. Okay. Because I like I like reading about. Um, other professions, other people in learning, and I wanted to write a book where people could read and and really say, so this is what it's really like to do what I do, you know, okay. to be a surgeon, sure. to make decisions, to make errors, um, to work through problems. So I wanted a piece about that. I wanted the patient stories, and I also wanted to tell the amazing history of transplant. Yeah. And I knew that some of the pioneers, you know, were still alive. And that unfortunately, they're kind of dying off sure. uh, as we speak. And I thought I had the opportunity to kind of get their stories as well.
0: That, um, must, so have, I, yeah. that must have been a wonderful yeah, journey. I mean,
1: oh, it was so great. I mean, that, that was always going to be a piece of it. And getting to fly around and meet at least some of these people you know the one who comes to mind of course is tom starzl the father of liver transplant sure. who died about six months after i spent oh, a day with him wow um and we were you know we were sharing letters back and forth because of course he writes letters more than emails but <laughs>
0: yeah
1: um sort of a different era uh but it, 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 i'm just so glad i got to interact with him and i so wish he had gotten to read the book of course of but course. um that was amazing for me, you know, to meet these heroes. And and what I really wanted to know from them is not what they did, because I know what they did, but like how they were able to do it, how they were able to persist at this this job when everyone thought they were going to fail and people thought they were murderers and uh, never thought it was going to work. And these guys, you know, persisted and made it work. So but, I, but, in terms of like, did I have the story, I think over the years, I just collected patient stories without any clear story, but as I worked on an outline i f- I was able to fit you know the patients into kind of the story I wanted to tell,
2: sure, of course, there's
1: so many more patient stories that I wish I could have included, <laughs> which I hopefully will someday,
0: but do you have a daily writing process or a routine? are you journaling yeah. like tell me a little bit about that,
1: yeah, so um. I uh, I have to tell you, like the experience was, I loved every second of it and I learned so much from it. I got, um, I got some great advice from my brother who's been writing, you know, for what, 30 years. And sure. he gave me two pieces of advice when I was starting my actual book. And he said, number one, um, when you start writing the book, just write. He said, don't worry so much if it's good, if it's digressing just go because he said the number one reason people don't finish their book is they get so focused on making it perfect that they you know never get out of the gate
0: so wait let me ask you fact, so yeah. like, no outline or did, oh, did you, you have bad, like okay. yeah like did you oh, have yes, yes,
1: yes, yes. yeah
0: tell me about that whole process I, I got
1: ahead of that yeah so I did start <laughs> that way so uh-huh. I actually um once I had an agent mm-hmm. which it, it turns out if you want to write a book, if you can get a sibling who's a best-selling writer, that's <laughs> a so Of course. I recommend starting with that. Yeah. But um, he helped me get an agent, which was great. And then we worked on a proposal, and I actually worked for a year on that proposal.
2: Really? And Interesting. Yeah,
1: so my first version of it was this kind of, like, 16-page outline that was terrible. It actually was <laughs> titled The Legend of Big Daddy, which <laughs> 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 that's sometimes my nickname in surgery, but I shouldn't admit that. Well, that's interesting. um, That's
0: a whole other question. Put a pin in that for later, right? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Uh But um, yeah, so then he read that and he said, no, 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 this is not what we're doing. So actually, we ended up writing about a 60-page proposal where each kind of couple weeks he would sort of assign me like, all right, in this chapter, you know, let's actually start with how it's going to start and then, you know, describe... Then write about all the characters that are going to be in it. Or in the next chapter, he might say, just outline the story that's going to be in this chapter. And we went back and forth for about a year working hmm. on this proposal. And okay. And by the end, I had this really strong kind of proposal um, that was 60 pages long that had, uh, you know, was broken into the chapters, pretty much the chapters we ended up using.
0: Fabulous. Um,
1: that's and great. I, and, and that was actually how we sold the book, you know, based on that proposal.
0: So did the writing then probably go much faster after you already yeah. had the the framework set up?
1: it did and and wh- during both during the writing of the proposal and the kind of way to sell the book, I was also traveling around and seeing some of these uh, pioneers who were still around. sure um, and then yeah then so then it actually is funny because once we sold the book, I, I had um, an editor who's wonderful, Gail winston who a mm-hmm. you know, very kind of uh, experienced editor. And I'm like, yeah, what, what should I do? And she's like, well, why don't you write the book? <laughs> and I was like, okay. But, you know, <laughs> I didn't know how to do that. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. But
1: I have to tell you, like, I sat down and I was so excited to write. Like, I couldn't wait to get out of bed at 4 in the morning. Mm. And I would run down to my study, to our study, and just write until mm-hmm. the kids got up at 6. And then um, in between cases I would write you know, in between surgeries. And then on the weekend all day, I would just write. I was obsessed. I loved it.
0: That's so
2: wonderful. um,
1: I know I couldn't, I like, couldn't wait to get back to it. It was just so exciting to me. And I was laughing and enjoying it. And I have to tell you, I, I digress, you know, Ben told me just, right. I digressed a lot. And so I wrote like crazy for a year straight. And at the end of the year, uh, I actually reached out to my brother and I said, Ben, h- how long is a book? And <laughs> he was like, well, we do it in words. It's like sixty to 120,000 words. And uh-huh. he asked me how long mine was. I had 300,000 oh, words. My oh, my goodness.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah.
1: That's
0: crazy. But there was,
1: I mean, there were a ton of digressions that I knew I would be cutting. Yeah. Um, well, it's just fodder. I do say, so it, it's fodder for yeah, the next
0: book. You know, you know it, I mean. Okay. All the extra materials. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But, you
1: know, so I did want to say, because I think this is great, the first piece of advice I mentioned about just writing. Yeah. But the second thing he told me that I think was awesome for me was he said, at the end of a day, never stop uh, in the, you know, at the end of a chapter, because he said Mm. the hardest part is when you get up, you can't get going. Okay. He said, always stop, like, in the middle of a story or even the middle of a sentence.
0: Oh, love it. And then,
1: you know... Like when you get up to start, you start finishing that thought or that story and all of a sudden you're going. You know,
0: I had a great mentor who said a page a day is a book a year um, and you mm. can easily write a page, maybe 300 words at the most. Right. And so um, when you think about it that way, you're like, yeah, I can, I could do a page today. And then you I do three do yeah. and all of a sudden, you know, you know, in a few months okay. you have you quite it. a big manuscript going, but um So that's great. That's great. So, you know, I want to ask you a few things about the book. Um, I know you look at ethical issues of transplants. So could you talk a little bit about that, about what are some of those ethical issues that um, Mm -hmm. everyday folks like us might not consider?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, transplant has so many kind of great ethical scenarios for a few different reasons. One, it's kind of in all other areas of medicine, you're spending time trying to kind of push off death. Uh, you know, get people not to die or maybe help them have a good death. But in transplant, it kind of starts with death. And we take organs from people who have just died. And people probably don't realize this, but transplant, both the discipline and the most famous transplant surgeon, played a central role in defining brain death.
2: And Hmm.
1: um, before the 1960s, brain death wasn't a thing. So most Hmm. people thought that death meant your heart's not beating. That's mm-hmm. what the probably most people would think. Sure. The challenge of that for transplant is that um, the organs, you know, become difficult to use as, as people lose their, you know, lose their blood flow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it wasn't just for transplant because there were lots of people in ICUs who kind of were, would be brain dead, but were still getting taken care of. Sure. And so it was in 1968 that... Uh, Joe Murray, who is a transplant surgeon and then another uh ethicist, um, wrote kind of the premier, you know, seminal article that defined brain death, which eventually became equivalent with legal death. Okay. So I think just knowing what is death and thinking about that is really fascinating and quite an ethical issue as there have been a few people who've uh, uh challenged that definition in a few kind of somewhat big cases. Yeah. Um So that's one thing. I think the other thing to mention is that we deal with allocation of limited resources, Mm -hmm. and we have to decide who should get them. Right. And so...
0: It's a huge question. Absolutely.
1: Huge. And we do that every day. So, Mm -hmm. you know, once a week we do kidney selection meeting. Once a week we do liver selection meeting, where, you know, you're deciding, is this person a candidate? Sure. Um, I think the obvious one would be liver transplant for alcohol. Right, Um, which actually has become our most common cause of liver transplant.
0: Really Um, interesting. So, what? Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, there there are a lot of um, judgments and uh, opinions Mm -hmm. that could go into that. So, so if I'm understanding correctly, what you're saying is that somebody who um, is an alcoholic or has spent a life drinking and their liver has failed wants to receive a new liver um, to have a second chance at life. Am I right?
1: Mm, yeah, that's right. I mean, there are a few different scenarios, but that's probably the most common.
0: And so how does that conversation go? How, how, did, how do we look at that as a society?
1: Right. I mean, you know, in the early days of transplant, people were resistant to transplanting uh, livers into people whose cause was alcoholism. Sure. Um, I think now everyone would accept that alcoholism is a disease, and mm. it's a disease that is difficult to treat. It can be treated successfully. Um, but it takes a lot of effort, and it's really a lifelong treatment. You yeah. never really get cured from it, I don't believe. But you, sure. you know, can get it uh, sort of in remission, if you will. Sure. And so I think that the challenge is, um, you know, if you have someone that's about to die, and you have this treatment that can save them, um, if if they have this other treatable disease, you know, is that a reasonable use of that resource? Sure. And rather than. You know, on the one hand, someone can judge the person and say, "Well, they screwed it up themselves;
2: it's right. their own problem." Right.
1: But I, I think um, the truth is, most of the things we do in healthcare have something to do with some part behavioral, some part genetic, some part bad luck. Sure. And honestly, if no one smoked, drank, uh, you know, <laughs> got into various accidents that one could avoid, there wouldn't be much for us to do. But yeah. I think the re- mm. I think you know we've gotten away from really judging a person with alcoholism as a bad person and more towards thinking about, do they have insight? You know, do they have the right support and the right commitment to, you know, make, to do well with this transplant, to make it sort of worth it, if you will, to get a good outcome. And it's, and it's a lifelong treatment. If they slip up once, I don't see that as a failure, but if they, Uh, you know, if they completely go back to drinking, that is a failure. Sure. So we really try to assess that. And we do pretty well. I mean, patients with alcoholic liver disease have as good outcomes as any other diagnosis.
0: Great. Uh, That's awesome.
1: But, Uh, you know, the more more recent controversial topic has been people that come in with what we call acute alcoholic hepatitis or people who are actively drinking. Uh Uh-huh. Um, that's more challenging because sometimes they can be very young people in their 20s and, sure. Um, you know their liver has completely failed and you have to sort of decide that one so that's been a real challenge
0: yeah I loved how on, on the HarperCollins um, review of your book it talked about mm. how you create life from loss and that you know with mm. every transplant surgery you're making a miracle um, you know anyone who's right. who's doing this which is um, it's awesome and um, really big. And I just wonder if, you know, if you, if that ever sort of occurs to you or you're just sort of going through your days, doing your work, as opposed to thinking of it in these Mm -hmm. large, you know, magnitudes. Um, but it is, it is creating life from loss and, and affecting miracles on earth. You know, does that, does that resonate with you?
1: It really does. And I mean, you, it is true that sometimes when you're busy and you're tired, you can kind of forget that. But,
0: <laughs> but truly,
1: every time you see an organ, like a kidney, start making urine on your hands or,
2: wow. you know, a liver
1: start pumping out bile, you remember, like, this is so amazing.
2: So And when cool. you go on
1: a donor, yeah, when you go on a procurement and you, you know, meet the donor family, and I, I've told this story before, but I was, you know, at first you feel nervous going to meet this donor family, but they're, they're so grateful to be able to talk to us, to be able to talk about the transplant, to tell us about this donor and how special, how this is the one positive thing in this otherwise, you know, tragic time. And it's such a beautiful thought and it means so much to make this gift happen. So I I do see it all the time. And I, I from the first day I ever saw a kidney transplant until now, when I do other organs as well, I just remember like someone is giving this incredible gift. Um, it's amazing to
0: be a part of that. I can only imagine. I mean, it's like poetry in motion. You know, the mm-hmm. the human um, experience at its best and its worst. It's, it is. You know, and you're a part of that. You're, you know, alongside it, orchestrating it, um, just really right. in such a powerful position. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I wanted to ask you, um, in your bio, it talks about that in addition to your clinical practice, you have <clears throat> an active laboratory that investigates mm-hmm. Um, the role of environmental exposures on the immune system. And I wanted to hear a little Mm. bit about that. What kind of work is that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so I've always had an
1: active lab uh, throughout my career as well. And um, it sort of evolved in ways I might not have expected. But I study the immune system and we we use mice as our kind of primary uh, uh, model. But um, for various different reasons, uh, since we focus on this particular receptor, it happens to respond to... Uh, chemicals found in pollution. So we look at inhaled pollution and how this alters immune responses, hmm. and it alters them quite a bit. Sure. Um, I don't only look at that. I actually also look at the role of diet and also the role of the bacteria in our gut. So, like the microbiome
2: hmm. and the
1: role that has in the immune system. And that's actually a really hot topic right now. Oh in yeah. Research. <laughs> you don't know, no, it it kind of blows your mind that we never knew this for years, but the bacteria in our gut actually are essentially like an organ that play a huge role in how we hmm. how we respond to exposures and uh, outside environments. So yeah. we actually have one project where we're getting stool samples or poop samples from patients who reject kidneys versus those who accept them. Huh. And then, you know, transfer that stool into mice that have no bacteria and then see how they do with organ transplant.
0: Wow. Wow. So
1: pretty pretty cool, fascinating stuff.
0: Yeah. You know, I've always been, um, fascinated by the Eastern medicine approach to, um, diet as, you know, good health or ill health that, you know, what you eat determines a lot of your health. And so it's, it's really what you're saying is that, um, that nutrition element, that, that food element is, is hugely powerful and impactful. Um, so that's, I think it's
1: fair to say that in healthcare over the last, few hundred years we've sort of woefully neglected the role of nutrition and i think
2: hmm.
0: we're
1: getting better for sure but there's still a lot we don't know
0: yeah interesting um, yeah so yeah. on this podcast um we talk a lot about how people make meaning in their work or in their lives how they find purpose um i wonder what advice you might have for our listeners about you know how how do you make each day meaningful you know you're going to work you're doing the things that you're obligated to do but Um, You're certainly finding purpose and inspiration, um, you know, all the time. What would you advise our listeners about making meaning and finding Mm -hmm. purpose? Yeah, I mean, there are a
1: lot of ways I might address that. So, you know, we all have our various coping mechanisms to deal with the different challenges in our lives. But, um, um, you know, I've I've always tried to look for the humor in situations. Clearly, (laughs) Clearly, humor is my... Number one coping mechanism, but <laughs> I in, I enjoy people. I try to keep things like keep people laughing and and be in general a, a positive person. I try not to um, I try not to waste too much emotional energy on things that aren't that important. So uh-huh. like <laughs> I try not to like there's various parts of my life in medicine, and I'm sure in everyone's life of like various paperwork or charting or this kind of thing that I just try to be as efficient as possible and not get emotionally upset about those kinds of things because they don't really, that doesn't really matter to me. Uh I try to, you know, really focus on the things that I think matter. And for me, that's often the patient care, um, you know, stuff that's going on in the lab. And I try to always be honest with who I really want to be and what matters to me. I think like a lot of people who go into my field, we train so hard and you kind of put your head down through your training that you come out and you never really thought about like, what do you actually want? And so trying to be honest about not what matters to other people, but what's going to be valuable to you. Um, And of course that can change over time, but I think that's okay. You can, you know, you can change your goals, but, so always trying to question like, am I, is this really important to me? Or, you know, or am I just doing this to, you know, because it's what, people think means I'm successful. So yeah. I've tried to be
2: yeah.
1: honest. You know, when I, I'm a guy who like, I have like, um, obs- I get like obsessed about something and I go all in and try <laughs> and master it. And then I get obsessed about another thing. So I'm, sure. I don't balance like a lot. I don't get obsessed with multiple things at one time. I think it's like sequential obsession. But <laughs> sequential like when you find something that, like yeah, and that. then I try to master it. I like taking out a new thing and trying to master it. And when you find something like that and you can dive into it, it's a great feeling to me.
0: Like writing 300,000 words in a year, right? <laughs> I loved <Yeah>. every word.
1: <laughs> every word was great. <laughs> I'm sure.
0: I'm looking forward to book number two. I mean, it sounds like you haven't yeah, done, absolutely. you know? That's great. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know what? It's That's been it. so wonderful speaking with you. I am I really appreciate all that you do, and I'm really inspired by, you know, how you're doing this incredibly hard work every day, this life-saving work, and, um, you know, affecting all of us for the better, but then um, sharing stories and, and really showing that human side of of the miracles that happen every single day. So um, Dr. Joshua Mesrich, thank you so much for being a part of the Make Meaning podcast.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was a lot of fun.
0: Thank you. And everybody look for that book, When Death Becomes Life, <laughs> Notes from a Transplant Surgeon. Um, it's definitely worth the read. So thank you for being on the show.
1: Great, Lynn. Thanks so much.
0: Take care. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, and I've really enjoyed being here with you today. You can find the Make Meaning Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and I'd love it if you'd share our great conversations with all your people so we can add meaning wherever we go and whatever we do.